As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to another classic replay from the archives of Unbelievable, this one from March 2015. Strap yourselves in and put multiple thinking caps on as we debate the ontological argument. Can God be proven by definition? That's the claim of the ontological argument for God's existence. Christian philosopher Peter S. Williams and skeptic philosopher Peter Millikan from Oxford University explored the different versions of this argument. Williams believes the argument is sound. Millikan believes it is flawed. Well, we're doing a topic that I've long wanted to explore on Unbelievable this Saturday afternoon. Uh, Does God, by definition, exist? We're debating the ontological argument for God today. It's a philosophical argument that says, in essence, that if we define God as something along the lines of a maximally great being or the most perfect being, we'll, we'll talk about some of the variations. Then he must, therefore, logically exist. Uh, Sounds too good to be true? Well, we'll be finding out. Um, We're going to be hearing uh, two people who really know their stuff on this talking about it. Peter S. Williams joins me in studio. He's a Christian philosopher. Uh, You can find out more about him and his books at uh, peterswilliams.com. But uh, he's going to be defending the ontological argument for God today. Our atheist guest, and I'm really pleased to have him on the line today, joining us from Oxford, is Professor Peter Milligan. He's the uh, Gilbert Ryle Fellow and Professor of Philosophy at Hartford College, Oxford University. He's an authority on uh, David Hume, for starters, but certainly he's turned his mind towards the ontological argument as well. And and, uh, Peter was actually, uh, for those who perhaps attended or were able to listen to or watch some of the material, uh, one of the people that William Lane Craig debated with on the Reasonable Faith Tour back in 2011. Um, Hardly seems that long ago, but in fact, uh, getting on for four years ago, believe it or not. Uh, Anyway, uh, a very warm welcome to you both, gentlemen. Thank you very much. It's great to have you both. Um, uh, let's start with you, uh, Peter Millikan, uh, because um, uh, your, your first time on the show, though we did, of course, broadcast the, uh, the debate that you had some time ago with William Lane Craig now. I remember very briefly the ontological argument being raised then. But uh, before we get into that, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you got into philosophy. How I got into philosophy? Mm. Got, uh, <clears throat> well, I went, I went up to Oxford to study maths originally and... Uh, I'd done loads and loads of maths at school and thought that was what I wanted to do. And then when I got to Oxford, I found that I was spending lots of time debating theology with people. Um, (laughs) Because for the first time in my life, really, I think, I came across a lot of people who actually had 
pretty close to a fundamentalist belief in the Bible. I was, at the time, a very committed Christian, but I certainly wasn't a fundamentalist. Mm. And I found it, I, I guess that stimulated me to debate a lot. I felt mm. that, that this was misconstruing what Christianity was about. I felt Christianity was terrifically important. And that got me into thinking philosophically. And um, I guess after a time, maths began to seem more and more sterile. And I ended up changing subject to maths and philosophy and ultimately to philosophy and theology. So mm. I, I did my first degree in that. Um, so that that's how I got into philosophy. <laughs> and in terms of your, your personal faith commitments, obviously in the end um, became convinced that actually there, there is no God. That's well, God uh, as traditionally conceived, definitely mm. yes. I mm. mean, I'm, I, I prefer to describe myself as a skeptic rather than an atheist. Okay. Um, I'm, I, I, I certainly. Um, don't think there is any God as traditionally conceived. What strange, weird and wonderful things there may be in the universe, I don't know. But the uh, traditional theism, it seems to me, is such a constrained theory that it is almost certainly false because it's so out of line with so much evidence. Um, but in general, I, I, I like to think of myself as sort of open-minded and um, more convinced than anything, I suppose, of the limits of human knowledge. And at the same time, as at the the, the, the sad tendency of humans to think an awful lot, think they know an awful lot more than they do. Mm, I mean, mm. I do find it absolutely absurd thinking about the theological spe speculations that people make about uh, you know things like the incarnation and the Trinity and all that sort of stuff. Um, to suppose that we can formulate things with any reliability about these sorts of metaphysical questions. Um, particularly, you know, in the terms of antiquated philosophy, which we wouldn't now use for anything else. Right. That, that those I find a bit ridiculous. Sure. It? Well, it, it's it's really interesting to hear about your journey and, and where it's taken you so far. Um, wish we had more time to, to delve into that, but yes. um, we, we're going to be um, opening up a different can of worms, a slightly different can of worms anyway, uh, with this ontological argument. And, and you've made no bones about the fact you really don't think this argument really has any weight to it. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, so, yeah. I, think, I think it's philosophically interesting. I, I wrote a, a long paper in the journal Mind in 2004 about it because I... I obviously thought it was well worth putting time into it. Mm. Um, but what, what I think is fascinating about the ontological argument is why it fails. In other words, it's, it, it's an interesting logical puzzle um, because people have tended to disagree about why it fails. But uh, I think Peter would agree that he's very much in a minority in thinking that it may succeed. Okay, well, well, we'll find out from Peter in a moment's time. Um, if you want to watch or listen to uh, the debate that uh, Peter Millican had with William Lane Craig when we were doing the Reasonable Faith Tour a few years ago, I'll, I'll make sure there are links from today's programme as well. So check that out at premierchristianradio.com with today's programme. But it's great to have you on the line, Peter, to talk Thank about you. this. And um, we'll, we'll introduce our other Peter now, Peter S. Williams, who is a Christian philosopher, no stranger to this show, of course. He's been on a few times over the years. Um, but for those who, who maybe uh, don't remember the last time you came along, Peter, you um, sort of grew up within a, a Christian framework, didn't you? But certainly yeah. you've been interested in pursuing the f philosophical end of that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, again, something that I discovered when I went off uh, to university. It's interesting hearing uh, about Peter American's journey at university. I went to university, uh, originally at Cardiff University, to do a joint degree in English literature and music. Ah, so you, you're another one of these people who, <laughs> yeah. who jumped ship. That's right. And I ended up jumping ship uh, to my third course at the end of my first year there. 
Um, you do humanities in the University of Wales. You do three courses in the first year. So I, I jumped shipped my third and uh, finished with a, a degree in philosophy from Cardiff and then I went see. on studying uh, philosophy further thereafter. Presumably you've kind of come to a completely different conclusion in terms of Peter's one as to where that those philosophical uh, yeah, issues sure. le- led, led you in terms of belief in God. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I, I would almost describe myself as something of a sort of maximalist <laughs> in terms of this whole area of natural theology. It seems to me that the more and the deeper I think about the, the uh, arguments for God, the sort of whole philosophical area of natural theology, uh, the more I think there is uh, to the area and to the arguments, it seems to me. Well, that's the idea here on the show. We always get people who completely disagree with each other to, to talk about issues. Um, but I, I think we learn a lot in the process as well. Uh, maybe sticking with you, first of all, Peter S. Williams, mm. um, let's talk about the ontological argument. And we're going to have to, I'm afraid, in the course of today's show, boil this down mm. as much as we can so that as many people as possible can, can, can grab onto what we're talking about today. And I'm really saying that for myself as much as anyone else. But um, the ontological argument sounds very fancy. In, in a nutshell, could you explain what, what it is? OK, well, it's a, it is an argument that starts with thinking about what we mean when we're talking about God, what, how you define God or what it would mean to be God mm. uh, in the sort of monotheistic biblical kind of kind of sense and it goes back particularly uh, to a medieval guy called St Anselm who came up with the first version or versions scholars disagree of this argument uh, defining God as the greatest conceivable being uh, today as you said uh, different phrases are used say, say the maximally great being or the greatest possible being um, that when we're talking about God um, we're talking about a being, and this is kind of the crucial hinge point, I think, uh, a being who's, uh, were he to exist, mm. the kind of existence he, he would have would be uh, a necessary kind of existence rather okay. than a, a sort of simply contingent or dependent sort of happenstance right. kind of existence. It would be somehow logically, as you say, necessary for that being to exist. Right. So if if, if things exist... They either exist uh, in dependence, in contingency upon other things or not. And if it's greater, if it's a greater kind of being mm. to have that sort of independence of existence, that, that, that necessity of existence, then were there to be a God, mm. of course, he would have that kind of being. Mm. Now, once you get to that stage, you, you can then sort of follow through arguing that, well, that would mean that the, the, the only way in which God would not exist would be if it's impossible for him to exist mm. um, because that's what it is to be a necessary being mm. your existence um, is either actual and necessary yes, yes. or you don't exist and you're impossible mm. the one thing that it wouldn't make sense to say is that God is could be like talking about the Loch Ness Monster say mm. um, that okay maybe there is or maybe there isn't a Loch Ness Monster mm. um, but it makes sense to say well maybe there is maybe there isn't yeah. Uh, he could exist, but he doesn't. It's okay. something you could sensibly say. Um, there could be um, aliens um, somewhere in the universe, but maybe there aren't. Sure. Um, but if there's a God, he doesn't have that kind of maybe, maybe not kind of existence. So you have to kind of divide into thinking, well, OK, um, is God possible and therefore actual mm-hmm. or not actual and, and therefore you have to say impossible? The one thing that it sort of doesn't make sense to say is i suppose there could be a god but there isn't right 
It's very interesting to hear that Peter changed subject at university, just as I did. One thing I'd say um, to your younger listeners who may be embarking on university choice, do try to choose a course that leaves some flexibility, Mm. uh, because so often what we end up wanting to do when we're 19 may be very different from what we thought we wanted to do when we were 17. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot to be said for joint honours courses Mm. and things that allow flexibility. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very, very wise advice. I know a number of people who uh, who changed ship uh, yeah. as well at university. But, but um, yeah, but coming back to the ontological yeah, yeah. argument. Okay, so now, I'll, now I'll answer what you. Yeah, what yeah. Um, so, so when it comes to the ontological argument, do you want to give us a sense of what you believe it, it amounts to, and 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 even some of the different versions that you think are out there? Sure. Um, so, as we said, the ontological argument standardly starts from a conception of what God is or what God would be such a thing. And the idea is that the way God is understood automatically implies that he must exist, or as Peter has suggested, it it might draw the conclusion that either he's a necessary being or an impossible being, and then you make up your mind between those. Mm. The the argument started with Anselm. Anselm talked about that than which nothing greater can be thought. And that's a very clever formula, an interesting formula. I think it's um, subtly ambiguous, but it leads to a very interesting argument. Mm. And the the basic idea is that than which nothing greater can be thought, if it didn't actually exist, then it would be possible to think of something that is greater than it. Mm. Uh, Because something that does actually exist is generally going to be greater than something that doesn't. But clearly it's a contradiction if that than which nothing greater can be thought is exceeded in greatness by something else. We Mm. get a contradiction. Of course. So therefore, it's impossible to deny the existence of that than which nothing greater can be thought. It's a very nice, ingenious argument. (laughs) Um, Descartes, uh, René Descartes, famous French philosopher whose meditations came out in in, uh, 1641, um, he produced a version of the argument which is much simpler um, his, he just said, said, essentially, God is the most perfect being. Um, by definition, the concept of God includes all perfections. Um, existence is a perfection, therefore God must have that perfection, God must exist. And that can seem much too quick. Mm. Uh, so quick as to be pretty much incredible, I think, yeah. for most people. <laughs> it's not as clever as Anselm's, not as slippery. Mm. And then more recently, Alvin Plantinga, um, I think in about the uh, the 60s or 70s, came out with his version of the ontological argument, which is very much along the lines that Peter sketched. You you define God in such a way that either he's a necessary existent or an impossible existent. And then the, the argument is, well, there's nothing contradictory in the notion of God, therefore it's reasonable to suppose that God is at least possible. But if he's possible, he must be necessary, therefore there must be a God and... Um, who necessarily exists well let, just i mean I, I want us to run through this though just obviously you guys are very familiar with this argument but a lot of people i think are going to be sitting there scratching their heads going hang on how did you how do these philosophers who do believe in the ontological argument leap from the idea of a maximally great being yeah. to that being therefore having to exist necessarily so the the steps are if if a property of this being um, of being maximally great is existing. You'd think that would be an important part of yep. being maximally great. Yep. Therefore, 
if it's possible for there to be such a being, yeah. it must exist because that's one of its properties. Yeah, I th- so I the think... possibility of existing because it's got this property of being maximally great means it must therefore exist. Am I kind of getting there? Yeah, I think you're running together two different things. Okay. So in the case of Descartes' argument, um, yes, you simply say, look, um, one of the great making properties is existence. Therefore, the ultimately great being must have that property, must exist. Okay, so that's, that's a relatively straightforward mm-hmm. argument there. Um, the, where we get the stuff about necessary existence, that doesn't really feature in Descartes' argument in the same way. But um, it, it, it's central to Plantinga's argument. Now, there the argument is a bit different. It goes like this. Um, some things exist necessarily. Maybe the number one exists necessarily. You can't imagine number one ceasing to exist. Okay. On the other hand, lots of things exist contingently. That is not necessarily. I mean, like the Earth, it would certainly have been possible for the Earth not to exist. Mm -hmm. It would have been possible for me not to exist. Mm -hmm. So I'm a contingent existent. Now, the thing is that if 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 a being is contingent then it is not even possible for it to have necessary existence. So um, if, somebody, if somebody says, oh, well, yeah, let, let's imagine a necessarily existing human being. Well, humans are by their nature contingent existence. They can't necessarily exist. They're not the sort of thing that can have that property. So actually, a necessarily existing human being is an impossible existent mm-hmm. okay now that so what we're saying is if if the property of necessary existence is not something that you can only contingently have okay mm-hmm. does, yeah, does that yeah make i'm sense? following that yeah okay. okay yeah now now if we then define a being in such a way that it does by definition have the property of necessary existence then that kind of being has to be either necessary or impossible. It can't be contingent. Mm -hmm. So that's the sort of argument that Peter was sketching, where you say, well, God defined in this way, um, he's he's the maximally great being, Mm -hmm. having necessary existence looks like the kind of property that a maximally great being ought to have. So we understand God to be a necessarily existing being, but a necessarily existing being cannot just contingently exist so it must be either it must genuinely necessary exist necessarily exist or else be impossible. Yeah, and then you give your reason for saying that it it's is not possible. Impossible. Yeah. So so basically, if it's possible for God to exist, then he must exist on the ontological argument as as framed by Peter and, and Alvin Plantinga in that That's sense. That's right. But yeah. but it's important to notice that the definition of God that you're considering there has to be a a, a definition that includes necessary existence sure. as an essential part of it. Right. So right. so. Somebody, um, it, that, that doesn't mean that God, as understood by anybody else, must either be impossible or, or, or necessary. But God, mm. defined in this particular way, has to be. Okay, well, let's come back to Peter, Peter S. Williams, just, mm-hmm. just to get a bit of... So you've been nodding away to, to the way yep. that, that Peter Millikan has defined it there. He's done your job for you, effectively, yep. Peter. But, um, we'll obviously come to why Peter Millikan doesn't think it's a good argument. But, but you, you, you do set some yeah. store in it. You're yeah. willing to defend it. Um, in fact, it was interesting. I, I read a chapter of a book that you wrote on, on the, the argument, mm. and, and you say that other 
philosophers have also come to the same conclusion. Even uh, you, uh, you, you say atheist Colin McGinn recalls being impressed with the argument when he first studied it, reporting it left me with a disturbed feeling. A lot of philosophy is like that, gripping, momentous, but also worrying, naggingly so. Um, so obviously, I'm, I'm assuming he remained an atheist, yes, so wasn't yes, in the end did. convinced of it. But, but nonetheless, it's got this sort of, wow, to me, it's almost too easy. Can you really define God into existence by a philosophical yeah, argument? Yeah, and it has that sort of aura, as, as Peter said, of being too, too good to be true. <laughs> yeah. It's like pulling a rabbit out of a hat somehow. It must, there must be a trick to yes, it. There, people there's some kind of, yeah. on meeting it. And, and I think, the, 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 as, as you asked, it, it's, it's to see that the argument's not simply about just defining God into existence as a matter of sort of linguistic mm. definition. It, it's not arguing along the lines of, well, um, by God, by the word God, let's all agree to mean a being who exists. Right. <laughs> um, oh, look, God means a being who exists, so of course he exists. You know, <laughs> that would be the trick. That yeah, would be sure, the trick version. Sure, sure. Um, and and in, in terms of um, what Peter was saying about I mean, me being in a minority of philosophers in defending this argument, I, I think I'm happy to, to concede that. Right. Um, but what I would say is that I think um, the majority of philosophers, it seems to me, who've looked at the sort of the Plantingan sort of necessary or contingent kind of making that distinction yeah. kind of version of the argument, I agree that it's a logically valid argument, Okay, but that the, the disagreement comes uh, with the, the crucial premise as to whether or not God is actually possible. Or right. Not. So once okay. you've said God is either possible and therefore necessary and therefore mm-hmm. real, or he's impossible. You've given an escape clause okay, of saying, yeah. "Well, all right, then I'll just say he's imp- he's impossible." Right, okay. So, uh, so most debate, people, yeah, most people say attack that that premise. That's then, right. That, that, so they that agree on the logical structure of the argument. That, that all seems to be fine. Right. Most most people are happy to say. But then the debate really gets heated up over <laughs> the crucial premise. Well, is is God possible or is he impossible? Yeah, um, yeah. Because you can say either. <laughs> uh, do, do you first of all, uh, Peter Milliken, agree with the that the, it is a logical argument that that it. It follows if the premises are true. Let's say. Well, yeah, my inclination is to agree with Peter here. I mean, some will say no. It depends on particular assumptions about what's called modal mm. logic. That is the, lo- the logic of necessity and possibility. And indeed, it, it does depend on certain assumptions there, but they're not implausible assumptions. Mm. Okay. And, and my general line with these sorts of arguments is not to focus on, if you like, footling quibbles like that i want to say no you can have your logical framework um let's then see if the argument works given that framework and if it did that would be quite impressive Mm. um but you don't think it does no well the problem with it is that it goes far too quickly um that you end up with a, a definition of god which has the following implication if god such so defined possibly exists then he necessarily exists but it's also a consequence of that definition that if God so defined possibly doesn't exist, then God necessarily doesn't exist. So the, the, the way the definition is drawn, um, the atheist and the theist are, as it were, you know, in the same place mm. of, as far as that goes. So it's not as though the, the theist can say, well, look, I'm just making a minimal claim that God is possible. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you have to claim that he's impossible, which is right. a much yeah, stronger yeah. claim to make. Okay. No, actually, all the atheist needs to say, God 
possibly doesn't exist. Because the trouble is, given the way God's defined, he can't be just contingent. So he's either necessary or impossible. So, you know, if he possibly exists, then he necessarily does. If he possibly doesn't, then he necessarily doesn't. And it might look as though it's a coin toss. Mm, mm. But at that point, what I would say is, look, here's a corresponding argument. Um, Let an N rabbit be a necessarily existing rabbit, a rabbit that has the property of necessary existence. Mm -hmm. And then I can run the same sort of argument and say, well, if it's possible that that there's an N rabbit, Mm. then it's necessary that there's an N rabbit. Um, and, you know, an N-rabbit doesn't seem to be a contradiction in terms, so there we are, there's an necessary... Well, can, can, uh, well, well yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, I think that's, again, the, the logic, see, the logic is parallel, but it's yeah. going to come down to um, the, the soundness of the premise, the truth of the premise. So I'd take us back to the comment Peter made earlier about a necessarily existing human being being yeah. an impossibility because human beings by nature are contingent things. Mm, I'd yeah. say exactly the same point about a rabbit by nature is a contingent thing. Absolutely. But of course you can't run that argument against God because God, by definition, is not a contingent thing. <laughs> well, hang, hang on. Can I come back on Yeah, that? of course. Do, do okay. so. <laughs> so, yeah, of course I'm putting the example of a rabbit because I want to refute it. I, I want to give, you know, some, nobody's yeah. going to say that a rabbit is a... Sure. Is a but the point I'm making is that the argument as presented mm. gives nothing at all to suppose that God is different, okay? Because the, the premise mm. is that, that God thus defined is a necessary existent. I'm allowing that. Mm. You can define that as you like. Uh, you can define a, a necessarily existing mm. rabbit like that. Yeah. So the fact that you can define it doesn't do anything at all to establish its reality. That's right. I, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. And I, I think that's when you, as I say, you get into the debate then is all about the possibility. Are there, are there of, any actual, you yeah. know, is there more reason or not arguments yeah. for or against the crucial premise? Because this, this, I think it's a point made by the, the philosopher Peter Valian Vegan, uh, who pointed out on the ontological argument that you can't, that the defender can't simply say, well, we ought to give the benefit of the doubt Quite. to possibility claims. Because actually, if you if you if that's all that I was saying, well, well, you know, I've got the claim it's possible that God exists, and you ought to give that the benefit of the doubt because you know, sure, you know, anything's possible. Kind of. um, well, actually, you could say the same about the reverse concept. You could say, yeah. well, well, yeah. maybe it's possible that there's someone who knows that God's existence is impossible. Right. And if you ought to give if you ought to give every possibility claim the benefit of yeah. the doubt, you'd, you'd, then every, everything yeah, would be proved. It would self cancel yeah. out. So it, it's going to come down to: Do we have some reasons for thinking that it's more plausibly true than false to say yeah. that God is possible, or the reverse? We're going to take a quick break, and uh, we'll come back to this. Uh, I hope you've got your thinking caps on this afternoon. Uh, we're talking about the ontological argument for God here on Unbelievable. My guests are Peter S. Williams, Christian philosopher, and uh, Peter Milliken, who's a, a professor and a, a, a well, sceptical, let's say, a professor of philosophy in Oxford. We're talking about this argument that says, is it possible that, by definition, God exists? And we'll be back in a moment's time to continue discussing it. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. 
And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Andy Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong, because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. Well, we're continuing our discussion this Saturday afternoon on the ontological argument for God here on Unbelievable. We we call ourselves the show that helps to get you thinking. We've certainly asked you to um, don your thinking cap today. Very philosophical discussion. And the ontological argument for God essentially is an argument that says if we simply define God in, in essence as a maximally great being, that might be one way of putting it, then by definition that must include existence and therefore if it's possible for such a god to exist, he does exist. Um, now, uh, that's a, a very thumbnail sketch of it, and, and we've been hearing some of the more technical aspects of what that might mean from my guests today on the programme. Peter S. Williams joins me. He's a Christian philosopher. Uh, find out more about him at peterswilliams.com. Uh, and uh, Professor Peter Millican, who's a Gilbert Ryle Fellow and Professor of Philosophy at Hartford College, Oxford University. And uh, he's been explaining why, as far as he's concerned, um, there really isn't uh, well, it's an interesting argument, but but it's very hard to ultimately defend the ontological argument. Um, so just in that last section, um, Peter Millican, uh, Peter Williams was explaining that, yes, he certainly is in the minority when it comes to people who defend the ontological argument. Uh, but but that, that it, you know, as long as you, as far as he's concerned, you, you've got a, a, a defensible version of it. Uh, it really does come down to the question of whether it's possible or not possible for such a god as defined to exist um is that the kind of the, the point at which you kind of as it were level your attack at the the the, the argument as to whether it's pos- it, it is in, indeed possible for such a god to exist okay well <clears throat> i think i i've been trying so far to avoid any detailed discussion about different notions of necessity and possibility mm. And they might become pertinent. Okay, here. so we're, we're going to have to steal ourselves for yet another leap in, <laughs> in technicality. Yes. But yeah, let's go uh, for it. W- we might, yeah. But for, for the moment, let me let me um, say the following. Um, it seems to me that the onus of proof is very, very much on the theist. Here's why: I, g- I gave the example earlier of a necessarily existing rabbit, an N rabbit, and we all agree that there can be no such thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, a rabbit is not the sort of thing that can necessarily exist or that can have the property of necessary existence in the relevant sense. Now, um, given that that's the case, we have a decisive reason for rejecting the ontological argument for the existence of a necessarily existing rabbit. Mm-hmm. Okay, given you've got a toss-up, either, in a, in a sense, either it's uh, possible that there's such a necessarily existing rabbit, or it's possible that there isn't, and we know that whichever possibility you go for, that's going to imply a net necessity. Uh, but given that choice, we will much prefer to say, no, that sort of thing cannot necessarily exist. Mm-hmm. A rabbit is not the sort of thing that can have the property of necessary existence. Okay, so what sort of things can have the property of necessary existence in the relevant sense? Mm. Well, one's inclined to say things like numbers. Yeah. You know, 
the yeah. number one, the number four. These mm. are things mm. that could not fail to exist. If they do exist, they, they absolutely necessarily exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as long as I'm referring to you know, a genuine uh, possible number, there must be such a thing. And what sort of things do we think couldn't have that property? Well, generally, the things that we encounter in the contingent world, the things that have uh, causal influence on us, the things that we see around us. Um, Now, God, as traditionally understood, is a being who acts in the world, who has causal powers, who Mm. does things. That doesn't look like the sort of abstract object to which we are prepared to ascribe necessary existence. So I, I would say that given that the notion of God is much more like the notion of a person than it is like the notion of a number, mm-hmm. we have very strong reason for saying that God belongs with persons mm-hmm. as a contingent rather than a necessary existence in the sense that we're using it here. That is the sense of logically necessary existence, the sort of uh, necessity that has the properties that Alvin Plantinga ascribes. Yes. Now, somebody might say, but look, everybody understands that God's existence, if God exists, is going to be different from that of humans. Uh, God is not going to be dependent on other things in the way that we are. Mm. Uh, God is not going to need to be created, nor will he pass out of existence as we will. Now, I can concede that. I can say, yes, absolutely. But the kind of necessity you're talking about there is not the necessity of logical possibility and impossibility. Mm. There, you're talking about something very different, which is a kind of independence. And that is not the sort of necessity to which Plantinga's argument can properly be taken to apply, or at least it requires significant argument to say that it would. Okay, it, very interesting. I mean, I mean, I've sometimes heard it said as well as an objection, well, if you, you know, you could define a, a pizza as having, exactly. the, you know, uh, great making properties of being, and, and that would mean that, you know, necessarily uh, the greatest ever pizza has to exist yeah. and so on. And, and I, f- I hear the same point being made here that we don't do that for contingent objects like pizzas, like rabbits. Uh, what reason do we have to do it for what, in your view, Peter Millikan, is another contingent object, uh, as far as you can see, God? Um, you, and, and so the, the, the weight of. Um, yeah, the burden of proof is on Peter Williams to explain why God uh, is a, a, a necessary thing in the way that a number is uh, almost. Um, uh, so, so Peter, do do you agree? Do you, is 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 that what you have to now show that God is necessary in this particular way? Uh, I don't think so. I think uh, what's being left out here is uh, a third. Uh, kind of category of being, as it were. Peter has um, drawn a distinction between uh, contingent, concrete, physical beings like rabbits and human bodies and pizzas and so on, Mm. and abstract objects like um, numbers, numbers as Plato Mm. conceived them. Um, But of course, um, abstract objects, as as you said, are traditionally defined as as, uh, causally impotent they don't interact mm-hmm. the number one if it exists hasn't ever caused anything and so on um but there is a third category and, and of course god uh, as traditionally conceived is neither thought of as being a contingent concrete physical being nor as being a, an abstract object In- inert object yeah. sure uh, but as being a, a concrete non-physical i.e. spiritual 
being uh, who has independent and necessary existence, who was not created, didn't come into being, will never go out of being, uh, and so on. Uh, and so I think he's just posed a, a, a false uh, dilemma, uh, uh, leaving out this, this third category. What do you say to that, Peter, Peter Milligan? Yeah, well, <clears throat> well, I want to respond that you can't have it both ways. <laughs> if you're going to use the logical framework of Plantinga's argument which relies on a particular interpretation of modality. Uh, You want, for example, to say that what is necessary or uh, impossible doesn't vary from possible world to possible world. That's an essential part of Plantinga's argument. Then that only works if you're using a very austere notion of necessity, uh, namely something like broad logical necessity. But once you start talking about dependency and things like that, you know, whether one being depends on other beings. I, I've, I've said, uh, I won't say I've conceded, because I'm, I'm quite happy to uh, acknowledge that the notion of God as traditionally understood involves, if you like, some, some rather more meaty notions of necessity. Um, but uh, those won't give you the ontological argument. So you can say, look, I believe that there is a God who is necessary in the sense of being completely self-sufficient, independent, never passing out of existence, never needing to come into existence, etc., etc. And you can say, you know, I think there is such a being. My response will be, well, maybe there is, but if there is, you, you cannot prove it using planting as type of argument. You're going to have to give some positive reason for supposing that there is such a thing. And simply talking about such a being it goes no way to showing that there really is one. Even if I allow you to have the concept, personally I'm, allowed to, I'm happy to do that. I'm happy to say, let, let's allow that that concept makes make sense. Where's the argument that there actually is such a being? Right, well, I think perhaps, and, and it's difficult without getting into, do we want to get into the, you know, the difference between um, logical and metaphysical and necessities and so on, but I, I, I think... Well, let's give, <laughs> it a, let's give it a go. Uh, go. Going back to the... You've taken us this far, we <laughs> might as well go the whole The, the sketch that I, that, I, that I started with, where I'm basically <laughs> sort of boiling down Plantinga's kind of argument into, into a, a, a single syllogism and, and saying with the, with the notion of God as the, as the, the maximally great or greatest possible kind of being... Mm. Uh, at saying that um, if one exists, one either does have contingent or necessary existence, um, the other option being impos- impossibility, uh, that God is either um, impossible or possible in, mm. in the kind of existence that he has, and uh, that, uh, as we're seeing, the debate is about, well, is it is it possible for God mm. and therefore necessary and real mm. that that follows that that's not hinging upon treating god as an as an abstract object but on thinking of god as a as a metaphysically uh, uh real um object but not mm. a, not a concrete physical mm. object but mm. a, a a metaphysical reality who were he to exist would would exist with a with a necessity of existence that it wouldn't be mm. Uh, possible for him to not exist. Okay. Um, that there's uh, in, in the planet, there's no possible world in which such a being would not exist. But I don't think that's that's depending upon treating God uh, as uh, 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 as one of these sort of abstract objects. You, you don't think, therefore, that the type of necessity in this argument that you're effectively essentially borrowing from from Alvin Plantinga mm, that, mm. that necessity is restricted to this 
very austere notion that that Peter Millikan says it is to right. to things like an, um, abstract objects, numbers. Yeah, and so on. it's the kind of necessity that w- that one would talk about in talking about the um, say the uh, the contingency cosmological argument right. okay. where you're talking about me- metaphysical necessity or contingency the, so just run us through that so in that case the, the the necessity of of the cosmological argument is that we there there must be something because oh uh, because th- th- there are things that it, that exist if one exists one exists either contingently or necessarily um you can't have an uh, an abs- uh, an infinite regress of mm. contingent things depending upon contingent things. So there must objects. be a necessary. So there must be a necessary thing somewhere, something um, that whose existence uh, is necessary, right. not contingent. Right. Uh, and if it's necessary, well, then it's it's necessary. Yeah. So so okay, go ahead. Yes, Peter Milliken. So, so the way I'd res- respond to that, yeah, the the, the kind of no- notion of necessity that one might want for the cosmological argument is a sort of ontological self-sufficiency. That you know, I clearly am a contingent being. I, 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 various causes produced me. I didn't produce myself. I couldn't have existed by myself, and so forth. And one's tempted to say, well, you know, we look around us and we see all these contingent existence in that sense, and we. Um, there is a natural tendency to want to trace it back to some self-sufficient necessary existent and that's where we get the god of the cosmological argument so I I agree with Peter there but I mean I don't think it's a good argument but I think it's a a tempting argument Mm. but notice that that notion of necessity is not um, logical necessity or even broad logical necessity as Plantinga calls it so imagine a possible world in which there was such a being. Um, in that world, uh, such a being could never go out of existence, right? So, so such a being would be, as it were, necessary in that world. But you can also imagine a world in which there was no such being. And if you accept the cosmological argument, you might think that therefore there will be nothing in that world. But, you know, that's debatable. Mm. But whether there are other things in that world or not needn't concern us. The point is that you could imagine a world containing such a self-sufficient being, and you can also imagine a world that doesn't contain such a self-sufficient being. And the point would be that that in those different worlds, they now have different possibilities and necessities by virtue of either containing or not containing such a being. Now, straight away, that means the logical principles of Plantinga's argument won't work, because Plantinga's argument depends on... uh, the necessities and possibilities not varying from world to world. So my claim is that if you mean that kind of self-sufficiency, you have to get rid of Plantinga's argument. You might be able to go for the cosmological argument, but the ontological argument isn't going to help you. Uh, so I think my comeback is going to be that I that that's exactly the point that I disagree with you upon, that, that where you say... Um, Oh, well, we can imagine a, a world in which there's no necessary being and, and there are other things. Um, that That's perhaps what I, uh, I want to say, well, you can imagine it, but is that logically possible that actually that the very point at issue is whether that is um, actually metaphysically possible or okay. not? Um, so that the point, the very point that you set aside, I think, is the crucial point at variance. OK, so, so could, I, could I hear appeal to Christian tradition? Because <laughs> those who defend the cosmological argument... Uh, very commonly raise the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Mm. Mm -hmm. They say, oh, there could so easily have been nothing. It requires explanation that there is a world here. And they think God provides that explanation. 
they themselves are saying there could so easily have been nothing. So, you know, you can't have it both ways. If the existence of anything is so sort of a priori surprising that it requires the cosmological argument, then you can't say at the same time that there's some sort of inherent contradiction in there being nothing. And if there could have been nothing, then uh, the the necessities and possibilities in that world would be different from any world that contains a necessary being, a necessary God, in which case Plantinga's argument can't work. So I, you know, I'm going to kind of play the arguments against each other. Wow, this, I tell you, I'm just about keeping up here. But um, so, so, so look, as, as I understand it, right, you've, if, if Peter Millikan is saying to you, yeah. Peter Williams, if you want to defend the ontological argument, as you put it, you need a God who necessarily exists. But if I can imagine a world where nothing exists, mm-hmm. including, obviously, the God, mm. um, then evidently I've managed to, to, to undercut your argument there. You've said, ah, but that's the whole point, isn't it? it? Could there be such a world in which a God does not exist? Yeah, it's, it's whether one can coherently imagine such a world. Right. Which, in other words, it's back to the question, is God's existence as defined log- log- possible, let's say broadly, broad logically, metaphysically possible, or metaphysically impossible? And, 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 then, and then Peter Millikan's come back and said, oh, well, if, you, if you're using that, then I'm going to take away the cosmological argument, the, the, the right. idea that, yeah. that it could... You know, it could have been that there was nothing, but we are, you know, but the fact there is something yeah. needs explaining. Uh, so I'm not going to let you have both of those arguments, <laughs> Peter, in your in your arsenal. You'll have to choose one yeah. of them. Well, I think there are ways. So, so of... Justin, <laughs> the, the, the crucial point here is that there there are two notions of necessity and possibility in play. Right. And and I'm basically saying to the to to, to the theist, well, you know, take your pick, <laughs> but you can't, as it were, get the benefits of both and combine them together. Okay. It's not, you're not going to be able to have the cosmological argument, um, the, the sort of necessity that applies to the cosmological argument, mm. and then play that through planting as ontological argument. Right. Well, well thus far, that, let's say, one, even if that argument works, all that means is I have to pick between these two arguments for theism. <laughs> it's not actually an argument against the ontological argument. But okay. B, I think there are ways of, of interpreting that, that Leibnizian question of why does, you know, why does anything exist? Right. It's actually, the answer actually that it seems to come out, out with at the end is because it's impossible for nothing to exist. Right. Because there does exist something that has necessary existence i.e. God. <laughs> i.e. God. Uh, so, so in that sense, it's, it's not a case of having to choose between yeah. the two arguments. I mean, this is taking us into a whole different argument. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, that's, a whole other, that's a whole other show, folks. <laughs> um, any, any response there, Peter Milligan? But here the point is the notion of necessity. What I, the mm. point I was making is that the kind of self-sufficient necessity that is commonly thought to uh, be required by the... Um, cosmological argument mm. is an argument which, when you look at the necessities concerned they are the, they could vary from world to world in the logical sense so that cannot be the necessity that you need for Plantinga's argument um, and again we I'm, I'm happy to accept that the notion of a, a self-sufficient being makes sense uh, you know, you can define that however you like. I'll, I'll give you that it makes sense. But the theist has to show that there is one. And if, the, if he can't do it by the logic of the ontological argument, then how is he going to do it? Now, the cosmological argument attempts to show that there must be such a thing, 
And of course, if that worked, then we would that would that would supply the missing link, as it were. Um, but I'm not persuaded by that, and I don't think the ontological argument is any help here because that requires a different notion of necessity. Oh. Incidentally, I think it's a shame we haven't discussed Anselm at all because um, <laughs> the. I mean, uh, perhaps if I can just very quickly mm, say with the, mm. with the Plantinger argument, if somebody wants um, a, a very quick put down of it, I would say this. Plantinger's argument is such like, essentially says this, the following kind of being, namely, a perfect being which is such that if it possibly exists, then it necessarily exists, possibly exists. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that is just begging the question. It's saying, I'm going to define a being in such a way that if it possibly exists, then it necessarily exists. And, and then I'm going to say that it possibly exists. Right. <laughs> I, I really think it's got no more force than that. Uh, but the, um, so, and, and in that sense, it's, it's semantics and wordplay, as far as you're concerned, to, yes, to that degree, Peter. defining a notion in such a way that its mere possibility will imply its necessity, and then saying that it possibly exists. And I think that, that really shouldn't persuade us. Well, that's kind of exactly what but, you said we shouldn't be doing with this argument at yeah. the beginning, Peter Williams. But, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I kind of agree with that point. But as I said, that, that, that is only as much as to say to agree that with planting as logic is fine but it all comes down to saying you've got to say more than give me the benefit of the doubt when i say yeah. that it's yeah. the crucial premise it's possible yeah. um, that you've got to say something more than that yeah but um, i think that the logic is only sound if you presuppose a particular notion of necessity and that particular notion i don't think is going to give you what you want you know from the kind of cosmological view of god I mean, do, OK, we, we're just coming towards the end of this second part. So so let's start to to, to wrap things up. Um, uh, B, Peter S. Williams, I'm not sure where to go from. We kind of yeah. have reached an impasse, I we think. We could have discussed Anselm. We, well, we, let's, let's maybe talk about Anselm at some point as well. But um, for, for you, um, are you kind of how much kind of you know because it's a somewhat complex argument anyway to get your head around do is this one that you know if someone said give me your best proof for god you'd you'd give to them or, or would you say <laughs> yeah. would you reserve this it, for sort of it, when you're two hours into the conversation that, that's right yeah <laughs> it wouldn't it wouldn't be the one i draw out of my top pocket first <laughs> let's put it like that um and and i certainly wouldn't produce it as it sometimes has been produced in the history of philosophy as kind of here's a knockdown argument okay uh, for God, it, that it just shows you know it's log- you know it's, it, you're stupid <laughs> if you think there's no God. Once I've I've defined it like this, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Uh, what I think it, it does is is you've got a logically valid argument mm-hmm. that if you can show you've got more reason than not for thinking that it is possible for mm. a, for a maximally great metaphysical mm. me- metaphysically ma- maximally great being <laughs> to exist it's difficult to say um then it's an argument that gives you some reason yes. to believe in god it's right. it's part of um the cumulative case of arguments for god yeah. that i would that i would give do you, do you know of anyone who has changed their view on the basis of this argument alone i mean could could, could you tell me anything? yeah i i do and um, there's a philosopher called trent doherty uh, for example uh, who, who has said that he changed his mind because he of the became a theist argument. because yeah. of the ontology yeah. do, do you know anyone peter <laughs> peter millican in this case? I, i'm not sure uh, bertrand russell is reputed to have said at one point my uh, great god in bu- boots the ontological argument is sound after all but 
<laughs> it was a passing phase. <laughs> but, uh, but I don't think this lasted for long. Right, OK. But, but on the other hand, um, I, I, I wonder, this is a personal speculation, mm. if uh, Bertrand Russell's interest in, in what became his theory of descriptions might have been motivated by trying to show that the logic of the ontological argument doesn't work. Right. In, in other words, I think it may have had quite a significant influence on the development of 20th century philosophical thought, actually. Yeah. Um, I, I, it, I, OK, so so I've heard what you've both said, and, and I think it's a really interesting one. I mean, it's one that I honestly don't quite know where I stand on. I, I, I would never really attempt to persuade someone using the ontological argument because I only just about grasp it myself, I think. But but um, the in a sense... Um, I suppose it, it plays into lots of um, other arguments, as we said. It kind of links at some level to the the cosmological argument yeah. and other things. Yeah. Uh, d- is is what the person? I mean, d- do you think that the the other way in which um, it gets attacked, uh, Peter Millikan, by people saying, "Well, I'm going to show to you why God is not um, possible," is a kind of an incoherent concept yeah. in the first place. Um, d- is is that another way in which you would be happy to kind of, you know, have a go at this argument, if you like, apart from talking about the, the, the well, nature I of necessity. So. I, mean, I mean, the understanding of God that I have had myself and um, it is not one which makes, according to which God is either logically necessary or logically impossible. Um, so personally, I'm not particularly attracted by that line. But I, uh, I'm, I'm happy to give it as a kind of reductio ad absurdum. That mm. is, the person who thinks that the ontological argument is a good argument is putting themselves in danger of defining in God in such a way that he could actually be logically impossible. I mean, just like I don't believe that it's possible to have a necessarily existing rabbit, I don't believe that it's possible to have a logically necessary, necessarily existing God. I'm, again, I'm distinguishing that from the sort of um, uh, self-sufficient kind of necessity, which mm. I, which may well be possible for all i know but but that's a different a different concept we're, we're going to take a, another quick break and we'll just have five or ten minutes to to start wrapping things up and i know you wanted to, to briefly mention um anselm's version of this as well um to peter millican so uh we'll, we'll, we'll go to another break and come back in a, in a short moment's time and uh, we'll we'll finish this discussion on the ontological argument for god asking today on unbelievable does god by definition exist well, coming back um, to both of you, gentlemen, um, you, 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 I know, wanted to, to talk about Anselm, uh, the way that he defined the, the ontological argument as well, Peter Millikan. Um, was he one of the first to, uh, to, to, to dream up this particular argument? Oh, he was the first, He yes. was the first, yes. Abso- absolutely, yes, it's his great argument. And the, re- the reason I think Anselm's version is uh, particularly interesting is that it's much cleverer than the others, I think. Mm. Um, and... What particularly makes it slippery is that it hides certain ambiguities, and these ambiguities are really quite difficult to see. Um, So let me just um, give give you an example of this. Mm. Suppose I say God is that than which nothing greater can be thought. Okay, Mm -hmm. that than which nothing greater can be thought. And now I ask you, can you think of anything greater than... And here I choose some immensely powerful, Mm. good um, individual. So I'm going to choose Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, who probably had the greatest combination of wisdom and uh, power Mm. that maybe there has ever been in the world. Um, 
cops are not normally very good people. <laughs> so, um, can you think of anything greater in terms of uh, power, wisdom, goodness than Marcus Aurelius? And you probably can't, okay? Because anybody you think of who was uh, better than Marcus Aurelius morally almost certainly didn't have anything like as much power. Okay. So I'm going to say, well, Marcus Aurelius is that than which nothing greater can be thought, because you cannot think of anything greater than Marcus Aurelius. Okay. Now mm -hmm. you're going to say, well, wait a minute, um, <laughs> that's obviously not what I meant when I said that than which nothing greater can be thought. I, didn't, I wasn't thinking of anything less than God. Mm. Right. So then I say, well, okay, what do you mean by that than which nothing greater can be thought? You don't just mean that which is so great that it's not possible to think of anything greater. No, you say, it's, it's that than which um, you, it, it, it wouldn't be possible for there to be anything greater. Well, okay, but how do I know that there is such a thing? Mm. And the risk is that when you say that than which, it sounds like you're actually speaking of a thing that exists. Mm. But, so there's another ambiguity between that thing which is in fact so great that nothing could possibly be greater, or that which, if it existed, uh, would, than which nothing could possibly be greater. So basically you get a three-way ambiguity in Anselm's formula. And what's so ingenious and interesting, philosophically interesting mm, about mm. it, is the way in which the different interpretations of it uh, fail for different reasons. So there's no one reason why Anselm's argument fails. Whichever objection you put to it, there is a way around it, unless you take account of the fact that the formula is fundamentally ambiguous. So, it, you know, it, it, I think as a if you like, as a, as a logical exhibit, mm. it's really fascinating. Yes. Now, you haven't attempted in, in that sense, Peter Williams, to defend Anselm's version. No, of, no. And do you I, agree I, that it... Yeah, it, I'd it, attack it, it on it, other grounds as well. <laughs> I think Anselm's version particularly um, equivocates between him, him talking about the God existing in your mind and in reality okay. being greater than God just existing in your mind alone. Okay. And therefore being self-contradictory to say you've got the the idea of god in your mind mm. but that you say there's no god and of course that equivocates between god existing in your mind or the idea of god right, existing yeah. in your mind and so they're not so the same it's, thing it's a bit of a bait and, bait and switch, <laughs> bait and switch. which is why, of, which yeah. is why i think that the more modern sort of plantingresque version yeah. which the majority of is taken agree, a lot more seriously yeah, it's taken a lot more seriously and as much as the majority of philosophers at least think it's it's logically valid and all the discussion is is on well is it metaphysically possible for God to exist or not, yeah, it's it's it, it is a fascinating area, and and I'm uh, yeah uh, still trying to get my head around some of the uh, the issues that have uh, been raised in the, in the course of today's program. I hope I hope if you're listening, it's it's helped you to think through this. Maybe you've heard of the ontological argument. Just something I should have asked right at the beginning of the program, but just for those who just don't know, what, why is it called the ontological argument? What does that refer to? What does the word ontological mean? Uh, perhaps Peter Milliken, do you want to explain that? Yes, I, I, I remember writing a, a, a paper on various uh, arguments about the existence of God and agonising over whether to use upper or lower case letters. <laughs> and I decided the ontological argument, um, you have to use upper case letters because the ontological <laughs> argument is a name, not a description. Okay. Okay, the word ontological just means to do with existence. Okay. Mm -hmm. And just like the cosmological argument, you know, that has to be a name of an argument because mm. lots of arguments are cosmological, lots of arguments yes. are ontological. But Immanuel Kant, 
I think it was, gave the name ontological argument to this particular argument, and it stuck. So when people talk about the ontological argument, capital O, capital A, that is, I think, a proper name of this argument. Right. And, it, and it's because it's to do with existence. That's what ontology... Yeah, but lots of philosophers' arguments are to do with <laughs> yeah. existence. So you see what I mean? Yes, indeed. If, you know, there are lots of arguments that are ontological, but only one capital O ontological means argument. we're talking about the argument for God specifically. Yes, yeah. sure, sure. And, well, when I say there's only one, actually, of course, we've been, we've been talking about variants of it. Yes, yes. Um, I, I take it that an ontological argument, capital O is an argument for God's existence which starts from something like a bare definition or a bare concept or a bare understanding of God, what God is or would be mm. um, and doesn't re- rely on any um, input from, as it were, the nature of the world. Sure. And by the way, you asked the question to Peter, but not to me, mm. but if, if I were a theist... <laughs> <laughs> I would not be pushing the ontological argument. I'd be pushing the fine-tuning argument. <laughs> yes, you feel there's a lot more leverage there in terms of potential uh, fruits. Yeah, but, I think yeah. that's a genuinely interesting argument and um, raises some fascinating questions, yeah. whereas I think most of the <laughs> traditional arguments for God are literally useless. Right. They, well, they, they deliver almost nothing. Well, well. It, speaking of the fine-tuning argument, that, of course, was the, the, the main aspect of what you debated William Lane Craig yes. on on a few years ago and, and I will post links to that as well um, if people want to hear more from Peter Millican uh, then do go to the, the website today premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable um, Peter S. Williams before we finish up if, if people want to do further reading uh, any particular resources you could recommend? Uh, yeah sure well to blow my own trumpet for, for, a, for a moment there's a chapter on the ontological argument capital O capital A uh, in my recent book A Faithful Guide to Philosophy published with Passionoster Press and we'll give a link on the website I'm sure and I, I've got a, a, a YouTube uh, playlist of little videos about the ontological yeah. argument that we could link to as well and um, oh, I'll make sure to, to link to uh, your books and website as well Peter Millican uh, so, yeah. so that people can find out more can I suggest one thing? Of um, course. The, there's an online resource which is excellent called the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Mm. The Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. It's, I mean, it, 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 it's very suitable for university students and mm. so on. Mm. School, um, school children might find it quite demanding. Okay. Um, but it is an excellent resource on all things philosophically, philosophical and you know, its discussions of sure. various arguments for God are well worth looking at. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to be on the programme, both of you gentlemen. Uh, and I'm pleased to be able to say we've done the ontological argument now <laughs> on Unbelievable. We probably won't come back to it for another eight years, uh, but uh, we can say we've done it. Um, so Great. thank you, Peter Millican and Peter S. Williams, for being with me Thanks today. Thanks so much. Great thank being you. with nice you, Peter. To talk to you. Thank you for listening to this week's classic replay. Do let us know what you thought. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or leave a comment on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash Premier Unbelievable, or tweet us at Unbelievable FE. For more resources for exploring faith, head over to our website, premierunbelievable.com, and if you register there, you'll unlock access to all the content on the website, and we'll send you updates and exclusive content through the Premier Unbelievable newsletter, including bonus videos and e-books. That's premierunbelievable.com. See you next time for another classic replay of Unbelievable.